Lisa Treat, Associate Editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Danielle Dick, who is a Professor of Psychiatry and the inaugural director of the Rutgers Addiction Research Center at the Rutgers Brain Health Institute. Dr. Dick recently authored an article in Current Directions in Psychological Science. The article is titled, The Promise and Peril of Genetics. Many thanks for joining us today, Danielle. I'm eager to talk with you about your influential contributions to psychological science. Thanks so much for having me. So let me open the conversation by asking you to provide an overview for our listeners of the wealth of advances in behavior genetics over the last 20 years. So one of the things that I love about working in this field is how rapidly it is advancing. So when I look back to the kind of work that we were doing when I was a graduate student or a postdoc, we were extremely excited at that point in time because we could genotype 400 markers across the genome. And we were looking within families to see if we could follow the transmission of segments of chromosomes to try and identify genes. And now, fast forward 20 years, we are literally scanning tens of millions of locations across the entire genome. Of course, the whole genome has been sequenced now. We're now talking about it costing less than a couple hundred dollars to sequence human genome, whereas the first human genome that was sequenced cost, you know, nearly $3 billion and took 13 years. And so that degree of just exponential advance that we've seen in genetics is unparalleled in any field other than computer science. And so where we are today in genetics is a really exciting place because one of the things we've learned is that it's a lot more complicated than we thought it was 20 yeah. years ago. And we now know that what we really need are samples with millions or tens or hundreds of thousands of individuals minimally with genotypic data. And so these huge consortia have come together in the field to advance gene identification. And we are finally at a point where we can actually add up all of these locations across the genome that we're identifying as associated with a particular outcome. We can weight them by their effect sizes to create these individual, sometimes called polygenic risk scores or genome-wide polygenic scores that essentially can indicate an individual's liability toward a particular outcome. And they're starting to account for non-negligible Parts, portions of variance, so up to 10% of the variance. They're not highly predictive on their own yet, but they are certainly getting there. And if you look at how where we are today compared to where we are 20, were 20 years ago, it is just really exciting how much the field has advanced. We're actually at a point now where we're thinking about how are we going to take this to individuals directly through direct consumer companies like 23andMe. Mm -hmm. How are we going to get it into the clinic? Um, we're talking about precision medicine. Mm -hmm. And so it's really been a lot of tremendously exciting advances. The whole new world. It is. So one of the points that you make in your manuscript is um, you predict essentially that genetics will be the next major societal revolution. What did you mean by that? So I was inspired by a talk that I went to a few years back by Peter Diamandis, who is someone who talks a lot about 
exponential growth. Mm. And essentially, the argument that he was making is that human beings have evolved to think linearly. And for most of human history, that is that was appropriate. It worked for how our society was evolving. But if you look at the advances that have happened now in you know the last few decades, the last hundred years, mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, we've gone from the Wright brothers to the wow. ability to, you know, be on the other side of the world in uh -huh. a matter uh -huh. of hours, the idea that, you know, when many of our mentors, when they were in graduate school, they remember taking the punch cards down to the yes. huge computing yes, rooms. Yes, and yes. That was such an exciting advance. Well, now what we have is an entire generation that's growing up with incredibly advanced computers in their pockets, of course, in the form yes. of smartphones. And that has changed the way that, you know, that they're growing up. It's changed the way that our society votes. It's changed the mental health and the behavior of our kids. And all of those advances, um, especially I talked earlier about how genetics is the only area that shows exponential growth that actually outpaces computing. Hmm. And so if you think about those advances in technology that have quite literally changed our society, our lives, our kids over the last couple decades, that's a product of exponential growth. Mm -hmm. And genetics is showing an an exponential growth that actually exceeds that. And by that, I'm talking about the pace at which our genotyping advances are really moving forward. And so this is the idea that it took 13 years and $3 billion to sequence the first human genome. Mm -hmm. And now what they've done is improve that technology so quickly that we are at the point where we are now at a $200, you know, in the matter of a few hours sequence of a human genome. And so what that does is it makes it possible now to collect information from huge numbers of people. Mm -hmm. And we know that these huge sample sizes are really what is necessary to identify the genes involved in an outcome. Mm -hmm. And so if you start to then follow this we know this is what happens with exponential growth, mm -hmm. that things come faster than we could ever imagine, then you can quickly see how with genotyping advancing so quickly, now what are the implications of when we do have for any one individual, a genetic liability toward anything from risk for addiction to depression, to cardiovascular disease, to certain mm -hmm. types of cancers, but not only that, we know that many social outcomes are influenced by genetic factors as well. And so you can start to think about all the ripple effects of how that could potentially impact society. And the best example I think of this is one of my favorite movies. It came out the year that I graduated from college, 1997, Gattaca, uh -huh. starring Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. Mm -hmm. And they imagine a world in which at birth, you can know how at risk someone is 
for a whole variety of outcomes. And so there's a, a wonderful scene, which I show frequently in my talks, where they take a little drop of blood as the baby is uh, born and say, you know, 20% risk of ADHD, 40% risk of manic depression, you know, 90% risk of a heart condition. And that was science fiction then. Mm -hmm. But now we actually have the ability to do exactly that, to know based on these genetic risk scores, people with this particular genetic risk score, what is the likelihood that they will have a whole series of different outcomes? And you can calculate those for anything that is genetically influenced. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, you know, it is still science fiction in the sense that that movie does a beautiful job of then playing out what are all the ways that that could impact the way parents raise children, mm -hmm. job prospects for those individuals, essentially how they think about themselves. And, yeah. and that's why I always recommend it. And I show it in my classes mm -hmm. so that we talk mm -hmm. about what did they get right? What did they get wrong? What are valid concerns? Mm -hmm. But these genetic risk scores, I want to be clear, aren't very good yet. That's why, you know, you don't see them in the clinic right now, sure. but they're getting better and better every day. And I certainly think that is where we're going and it will have huge impacts on many areas of society that we can't even predict right now in the same way that a decade or so ago, nobody would have thought that you would on your phone Push, push a button and have some random person come to your house to pick you up, to take you to where you wanted to go, right? Uh -huh, Uber sure. totally revolutionized um, what was once the taxi industry. I really think that genetics is going to sneak up on our society and change things in ways that we're not even thinking about right now. Okay. Well, this brings us to another really important set of issues. Um, as you know, genetic influences on behavior are highly complex, but they're also often misunderstood. What are some of the common misunderstandings? Um, what implications do they have in a world in which direct-to-consumer genetic testing is available, as you're alluding to? And what can we do to help address some of these misunderstandings? This is one of the things that I'm incredibly passionate about, which is that we need to do more to increase public understanding of how complex genetics works, because I believe it is going to have these big ripple effects yes. that are coming faster than most people realize. And so some of the common misunderstandings are that genetic effects are determinative. And so we know that these genetic risk scores that I was talking about are these polygenic genome-wide scores. Of course, what they can do is indicate whether someone maybe is more or less at risk, but they in no way, DNA is not determinative. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, I always say DNA is not destiny. Yes. Um, yes. And so we know that both the environment and genes play a role that there is no one gene, there is no gene for depression or gene for substance use disorders or gene for impulsivity mm -hmm. or anxiety or any of those. And that's something that is not well understood by the public. And I 
in some ways blame our educational system in the sense that the genetics that most of us get mm -hmm. in grade school is single gene disorders yes. and you know we look at we do punnett squares and we talk about brown eyes and blue eyes and we study mendel and you know pea pods and that is the basics of genetics but what we don't go into is complex genetics, mm -hmm. which is, of course, what impacts so many outcomes that have major implications for huge numbers of our population. Mm -hmm. And by that, of course, I mean psychiatric and substance use disorders, cardiovascular outcomes, you know, certain types of cancers. All of these are what we would call complex genetic outcomes, mm -hmm. meaning that there is no one gene mm -hmm. that determines it except in some you know rare one-off cases where for example sure. there could be certain forms of cancer that are influenced by a gene of large effect but in general most of these outcomes are influenced by probably you know thousands mm -hmm. maybe tens of thousands of genetic variants that all have, play a small role on their own and so to understand risk it's really how many of these risk enhancing and risk reducing variants do you carry? And that's mm -hmm. where these overall polygenic scores come mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm. Most people are, are not taught that in grade school and sort of don't understand that. And then the piece that the environment still plays a big role. And so you might be genetically at risk for something, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you don't still have agency and that there aren't still environmental um, prevention, preventative factors, interventions, treatments that can play a big role. And another piece is that the way that the, our genes influence these outcomes is often not direct. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, a lot of my work is in the area of substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we know that there are some genes that directly affect the way an individual's body is going to respond to that substance. Mm -hmm. And that makes some people more at risk of developing problems with that substance than others. But the vast majority of genes that influence risk for substance use disorder are essentially genes that are influencing the way our brains are wired. Mm -hmm. And that impacts certain tendencies that we have, the way that we respond to reward, the way mm -hmm. that we um, weigh immediate rewards versus consequences, mm -hmm. things that we often will call somebody how impulsive they are. Yes, of course, yes. we know that there's lots of dimensions of impulsivity. Sure. Um, or how prone someone is to fear or frustration, you know, how anxiety sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So our genes influence essentially this complex wiring of our brains, which impacts some of these behavioral tendencies, which of course then can impact our environments. It impacts the environments that we seek out, mm -hmm. the way that we respond to particular environments. And so you could imagine someone who's um, more prone to sensation seeking, mm -hmm. as they get older, they might be more likely to seek out other peers who are pushing the edge of the envelope. Mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. adolescence, we know that often that involves substance use. So mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you have a peer group that is 
um, introducing more substances to the environment. Maybe mm -hmm. there's more access to substances. There is more social rewards from an mm -hmm. acceptance of using substances. So that that genetically influenced tendency can impact whether an adolescent ends up in a risk-enhancing environment, which could then lead to heavier patterns of substance use and eventually developing problems. And so I think, you know, the, the misunderstandings are that genes are determinative, that there's just a small number of them, mm -hmm. and many people don't understand these complex pathways by which our dispositions and our environments are intertwined and can sometimes create feedback loops that contribute to risk. But this also reminds us that environmental interventions can be very effective and important still, even when something is genetically influenced. So these are the kinds of things that I think are so important, not just for individuals who are studying psychology or maybe sure, in a graduate sure. psychology program to understand, but really for you know everyone to understand when we are getting to a place where these things like genetic risk for impulsivity, for anxiety sensitivity, for substance use outcomes, when they are going to become available through direct consumer tests, which yes. are coming, mm -hmm. as well as in the clinic, um, as well as all these ripple effects of things mm -hmm. we might not even be thinking about. Sure, you know, sure. In Gattaca, they, they have a funny scene where someone takes a hair and they get a printout to understand what that person is like when thinking about dating them. <laughs> you know, um, you, I, I really do think there will be all these unknown ripple effects, but hence, if we don't really understand the ways that genes are influencing behavior yes. and the limitations of those inferences, then it has the potential to, um, to essentially lead to harm and to curb the possible benefits that could exist. And that those of us who work in genetics want to see exist, that this information will be helpful to individuals yes. in, you know, making the best choices for themselves and setting up support systems and having, you know, that living their best lives and not leading to things where people think, well, gosh, if I'm at risk for depression, am I doomed? Or yeah. if I'm at risk for alcohol problems, well, you know, I'm going to throw up my hands and nothing I can do about it because nothing about the way that genes actually work suggests that's the case. Yeah. Thank you so much for that incredibly helpful overview of some of these common misunderstandings and some of the kinds of things that will be important for us to consider moving forward as a society in terms of enhancing genetic literacy. So um, another issue that you discuss in the paper is a profound lack of representation in genetics research. Tell us more about this problem and how it affects what we know and how our knowledge is applied. This is a huge problem in many fields and in many areas of medicine, and genetics is no exception. And so if you look at the ancestral background of individuals who are in these large gene identification studies, so individuals from whom we have DNA mm -hmm. and that are being used to find genes involved in particular outcomes, they are predominantly of European ancestry. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this becomes problematic is because we know that actually individuals of African ancestry have the most diverse genomes. So that's the birthplace of humanity. And you have, so you have 
more genetic variation in individuals of African ancestry than you do in individuals of European or even Asian ancestry. Because if you think about the history of the world, you have Africa being the birthplace of humanity. Over time, groups split off and migrate to other parts of the world. And so those groups essentially took a subset of the genetic variation. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is that individuals of European ancestry only contain a subset of the genetic variants mm -hmm. that exist around the world globally. And because they are the ones who are most represented in these gene identification studies, it means that we're probably missing genetic variants that are very important for health-related outcomes in individuals of different ancestral backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And in addition, in our gene identification studies, what we're often doing is finding locations that are nearby the causal variants, but not actually the very the place in the genome okay. where there is a direct biological effect. Okay. And we're able to do that because locations in the genome that are close together tend to stay close together. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to get separated in the mixing and matching of chromosomes that happens um, when, you know, you have sperm and egg come together to form mm -hmm. uh, new, new gametes and new genetic makeup and in individuals. And so because of that, we can essentially create these genetic risk scores by tapping into locations that might be near those causal variants. We don't have to be directly oh, at the mm -hmm. causal variant. But for individuals with different ancestral backgrounds, if you're not at the causal variant, they might have something different that's nearby the causal variant. So that's another reason that these polygenic scores I was talking about that are going to become so widely used they're not as good in individuals who have a different ancestral history mm -hmm. than the people who are being used in those gene identification efforts. Mm -hmm. So we both could be missing things, but also the things that are you know, likely going to be the same across all individuals, the actual biological causal things, they might be on a different background. And so we're not doing as good of a capturing them in individuals from different ancestral backgrounds. So for both of these reasons, what it means is that essentially our ability to predict an individual's liability for a certain outcome, and if we're thinking about health-related outcomes, to predict how at risk you might be so mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. intervene or treat appropriately. Pharmacogenomics is another area I haven't talked about, but of course mm -hmm. it's looking at how people might break down drugs differently mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so that you can um, target treatments, pharmaceutical treatments more effectively. So all of these things that are genetically based, they are going to work best for the individuals who are in those studies from whom we are generating this knowledge. Sure. And that that is disproportionately individuals of European ancestry at this point in time. Now, there's a number of reasons as to why there is this you know, disproportionate representation. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it is just logistical. A lot of these studies were done in Europe um, where there was a lot of money in biomedical research or in the United States where um, there were disproportionately white individuals participating in research. 
But some of it, of course, is related to the systematic abuses that have happened mm -hmm. to individuals of color by our medical community and distrust in genetics mm -hmm. research. And um, so these are, are wrongs that we need to right because what is going to happen is that the advances that we're seeing in genetics mm -hmm. are going to disproportionately benefit mm -hmm. individuals who match those who have been in our research studies. Mm -hmm. And they will not be as effective for individuals with different ancestral backgrounds, mm -hmm. which of course can have the effect of further perpetuating health disparities. Yeah. And so this is something that in genetics, we are talking about a lot now, which I see as you know um, a really important advance too, because candidly, 20 years ago, no one was talking about it. We didn't mm -hmm. recognize it. Um, it's something that our, our field is ashamed of and, and should be, but now we recognize this as an issue. It's going to be an uphill battle, and I say that in the sense that it is extremely expensive still comparatively mm -hmm. to collect, you know, deep phenotypic information from individuals, genotypic information, even at $200 a sample, which we're talking about for sequencing, or less if you want to just do a, um, a, a, a GWAS chip, which is mm -hmm. uh, even more cost effective now, but still when you are talking about needing millions of individuals to catch up to the numbers of individuals we have of European ancestry, that adds up really quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of money. As we all know, there's only a limited amount of funding from the National Institutes of Health, and, um, and they have many priorities. And so those are going to be some of the uphill battles. We are certainly working on um, correcting it both in terms of more diverse sample collection, mm -hmm. as well as um, developing statistical techniques that will make mm -hmm. uh, our, our scores work better for individuals mm -hmm. from different backgrounds um, as well, too, to kind of help with that in the meantime. And then the last piece is that we really need to diversify the scientists in our field. Mm -hmm. For many of the reasons that I mentioned before, um, you know, systematic abuses that have happened with individuals in genetics, um, it hasn't been a field that has attracted people mm -hmm. from diverse and underrepresented backgrounds for understandable reasons. And we haven't done enough to really nurture and create pipelines mm -hmm. to increase the diversity of scientists in our field, yes. which also means that there are questions that are very important that we haven't paid as much attention to and that we haven't thought as deeply about as we need to. And mm -hmm. so, for example, I talked earlier about how both genes and environment are important. Well, we've tended to focus on things like the parenting environment, peers in the area of mm -hmm. substance use in particular, where I work, but we've ignored things like, you know, systematic discrimination and oppression. And some of these things that we know are very important environmental factors. Mm -hmm. and, um, and these might be the stressors that can exacerbate or, you know, or conversely reduce risk. Things mm -hmm. like um, how parents talk to their children about race and about potential discrimination they might face. Mm -hmm. We know that can also be a protective factor. So 
these are things that we historically haven't studied in genetics because we weren't working with scientists from diverse backgrounds who were thinking about these are the kind of questions and the kind of environments and maybe differences in family systems and processes that exist in, say, um, African-American families. And, and so I really see as another advance that's happening in our field, though too late, um, is bringing in more diverse scientists to mm -hmm. think about these issues critically and uh, and how we can really think about genes and environments and how they relate to outcomes in um, in individuals from many different backgrounds. Yes, very important. So the last question here overlaps some with some of the issues you've already been discussing, but I'll let you take it where you'd like. Um, the provision of information about genetic susceptibility to various disorders raises a host of ethical, social, and legal issues. Um, what do you see as some of those key issues? How do you think we should address them? So one of the most important things I think that we should be doing as scientists and researchers is stepping outside of the walls of academia and essentially getting our information to people who can use it. Mm -hmm. And this also hasn't been something that has historically been rewarded or emphasized uh -huh. in academia. And I really think we need to change those systems because if those of us who work in this field and who understand all of these complexities about where genetics is going, mm -hmm. what we know and what we don't know, um, mm -hmm. how our genes and our environments come together. If we are not getting that information out to people, then what happens is other, other people fill that void. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people who know less about the nuances of the science and, and a lot of misinformation can happen. And I really believe that these, these are really important issues that don't have clear answers. And mm -hmm. so by that, I mean, even in my field of studying genetic influences on substance use outcomes, we have active debate among those of us working on these gene identification projects about, is this ready to take into the clinic? Huh. Uh -huh. Should it go to direct to consumers or should it not? And so these are researchers who are looking at the exact same data. We all understand <laughs> it in the same way. We don't even have all of these other issues about misunderstanding or, uh -huh. you know, or any of those pieces we talked about earlier. And yet we still look at it and come to different conclusions yeah. because we're weighing risks and benefits in different mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. And so these are, I think, issues that as a society will want to grapple with. Mm -hmm. How can we use genetics for good. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, one of the reasons that so many billions of dollars is being poured into genetic research is with the idea that we can move medicine from where it is today, a treatment-based model. Mm -hmm. Usually you go to the doctor when something is wrong. And mm -hmm. then there is this trial and error process of trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly costly to the individual, to their family, to the health system. Yes. And so the idea that our genomes contain a wealth of information mm -hmm. and we can use that to put in place earlier prevention, intervention, to do more targeted treatment, 
you know, obviously I believe, and, and many people do, that there is a lot of good that can come of this, mm-hmm. but we also need to be having really active debate about what are the harms of this? Because of course, genetic predispositions don't just show up one day, for example, in substance use disorders where you wake up and say, oh, I've had an onset of, of you know, alcohol problems. Mm-hmm. My, my genes must have gotten turned on. Mm-hmm. Of course not. They show up in these complex pathways in which you see behavioral risk from early in development. Impulsivity shows up in, you know, toddlers who are dangling from the tops of trees and giving their parents heart attack, heart attacks. And we know that then it shows up in teenagers in different ways. They're the ones who are, you know, seeking out these risk-taking peers and trying to hang out at bars instead of at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And so the ways that our genes influence outcomes, I think if we can enhance public understanding, Mm -hmm. right, could allow us to put in place um, prevention programs that can help from very early on, and that can be even outside of the medical system. I always say some of the most effective ways to address alcohol problems have nothing to do with alcohol. It has Mm -hmm. to do with, let's look at some of these early manifestations of risk in kids, and let's give them skills and strategies. But if the public doesn't even understand the ways that genes influence all these complex outcomes, we can't have those hard conversations about how are we going to put in place all these positive things, mm-hmm. but avoid the potential harm that one can you know, easily think of. How do we make sure that it's not being used to discriminate, that it's yeah. not being used to say, oh, well, this child doesn't you know, have the ability to fill in the blank, to Mm -hmm. succeed, to do this sports program, to whatever it might be. We don't want there to be misuse of genetics. And I really feel that a huge part of that comes from education and our need to help the public understand all of these complexities. Um, Some folks know that my pandemic project was I actually did something completely new, which is fun to do when you are a tenured full (laughs) professor to go back to knowing nothing. And I wrote a popular press book, a trade book. It came out from Penguin Random House uh, last fall called The Child Code. Uh And it's about the ways that genes influence kids' behaviors and then for parents Mm -hmm. to help understand kind of different behavioral traits in their kids and what are things that you can do um, to essentially help your kids learn skills that might not come to them naturally. It's me writing as a parent for other Mm -hmm, parents, mm -hmm. a parent who happens to have a background in these areas, but it is not scientific writing. It is Uh not, you know, academic, the way you would write for a journal article. And so it requires us to step out of our comfort Uh zone. Uh And, you know, not everyone wants to write a book. I happen to love writing, but, you know, podcasts, this is another great example of different Mm -hmm. ways we can disseminate information, working Mm -hmm. with the media. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can become a learned skill. Lots of our universities now have trainings to Uh help you Uh learn how to talk to the media and make connections with journalists and things of that sort. I think those are all the directions that we need to be going as scientists 
especially in areas uh, like genetics, where I think there are a lot of implications for society and there's a lot of misunderstanding and we can play a role in helping correct those misunderstandings and hopefully allow our science to be used for good. Well, this has been a marvelous conversation, Danielle. Um, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today about your fascinating and timely Current Directions article. Well, thank you so much for having me.